As you know, as you well know, Pastor Rob boys <laughs> assigns me the tough subjects to preach on. So I get Bathsheba, and next week he gets Mary. <laughs> now I understand it's told that Rob said that something, I preach with more grit when it involves scandal, <laughs> intrigue, spice, and flair. Now at his age, those things mean something. <laughs> but when you get to be my age, you're more interested in genealogy and posterity. <laughs> so that's kind of where we're going this morning in the series of the Mothers of Jesus. So you're familiar with the fact, uh, Pastor Rob has already laid the foundation of the women in Christ's genealogy in Matthew uh, chapter one, and of the one we speak of this morning, uh, it says in the scriptures, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And of course, that would be none other than Bathsheba. So for the last few weeks, I've done a little uh, interesting thing with believers and people I don't even know uh, in the marketplace. And I've said to them something like this, I'm gonna mention a word to you, a name. And if you would, without even thinking deeply about it, just tell me the first three words that come right to your mind, bing, bing, bing. And they, played along with the game, and then I said the word is Bathsheba. Now, I've got a whole list uh, of words that were used. Here are the most common. Conniving, beautiful, sensuous, manipulative, and controlling. Bathsheba's name is mentioned 11 times in the scriptures. Most people think only of the adulterous act with David, if in fact it was adultery. The question I want us to think about this morning is, was Bathsheba shameful or was she shamed? One thing we do know is the Bible never hides the flaws of its biblical characters. So today we're confronted with 2 Samuel 11, which is on page 262 of the Bible in the chair in front of you, if you don't have one, page 262, 2 Samuel 11. And we're confronted with the terrible, awful sins of adultery, um, murder, drunkenness, betrayal, deceit, and the list goes on. It's really not my intent this morning for us to dwell upon the shameful acts, but rather the one thing I want us to see is God's providence, which is the servant of grace at work in Bathsheba's life from her birth to her death, and that will bring great blessing to the entire world. So let's look first at Bathsheba's privileged lineage. Bathsheba's privileged lineage. And it begins with the home into which she was born, or her father, who was a man by the name of Eliam. Second Samuel 11, 3, 
uh, says this, who is, uh, by the way, he's also called Amiel in 1 Chronicles 3, 5. And both names really mean one and the same thing. It means God is my kinsman. And you know that biblical names often were prophetic and they were often descriptive of a person's life and character. Eliam is also listed in 2 Samuel 23, 34, among the elite force of people called David's mighty men. Today we would call them a special seal team. These were his most trusted allies, his inner circle of people, and they were uh, fierce warriors as well as men of valor and honor. Bathsheba was raised in a very good and in a very wonderful, godly home. Her grandfather is a man by the name of Ahithophel. Now, I realize to some of you these names are brand new. To others, you may have heard this name especially before. Ahithophel is named as Eliam's father in 2 Samuel 23, 24, where it says at the end, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Now, who's Ahithophel? He was the most trusted counselor and friend of King David. If you took all the friends and you bring them down to David's mighty men, of which there are 37, and then you just keep on narrowing it down and you come down to one person, that one person who was, in your life, it would be your most trusted, intimate friend that you would share your heart and thoughts with that you might not share with anybody else in life. That was Ahithophel as it related to David. The counsel that Ahithophel gave in those days was treated as if God himself spoke. Listen to 2 Samuel 16, 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. It would be like today that if there was a question on your mind, uh, an issue where you were wrestling with, and you wanted to get some biblical counsel, and you think of a person that might come to your name saying, you know, he's a walking Bible. He thinks biblically. He thinks theologically. He knows the word of God. I know if I go to him, I'll get good biblical counsel. That was Ahithophel. And when he spoke, it says, it was like you were speaking to God. That just as God would give you advice, so you can count on Ahithophel to give you that same advice as if one consulted the word of God. Now those of you who are students of the Old Testament, you remember that the greatest heartache in David's entire life of 70 years was when one of his own children, his son Absalom, Remember up on the Mount of Olives, how he wept, O oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. And Absalom mounted a revolt in order to remove his father David from the throne so that he himself, Absalom, could become king. It's bad enough when your son revolts and mounts a conspiracy against you. But Ahithophel... David's most loyal, trusted, intimate friend joined the conspiracy. David would write this later in a psalm, and I believe he's writing 
about this situation with Ahithophel, though we don't know for certain. Psalm 55, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. This passage has a historical as well as a prophetic implication. Because while it speaks historically of David and Ahithophel, and Ahithophel's betrayal of David, it also, a thousand years later, will speak of David's, the greater David, the Lord Jesus, and Judas. In fact, it says in Psalm 41.9, Yea, my own close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus said that Psalm 41.9 was fulfilled when he was in the upper room discourse in, in John chapter 13, verse, verse 18. And so this passage is describing the shock of being betrayed by your most, most intimate friend. How does a godly man, that when he speaks, he speaks the oracles of God to all those around him? Your most loyal friend, how does he turn on you? What makes a man do that? I'm going to give you a conjecture here. I can't prove it 100%, though I think there's strong evidence that says I'm right. Because remember, Ahithophel, David's most trusted, intimate counselor, was also Bathsheba's grandfather. Was it Ahithophel? I don't know. Some suggest in chapter 11, verse 3, that when it talks about a 2 Samuel eleven three 3, about David seeing the woman Bathsheba on the housetop, and it says in verse 3, he sent and inquired, who would you inquire, who would you send if you were going to do something as awful as this in Israel, but you didn't want anyone else to know? It's a secret. Perhaps you'd go to your most trusted confidant. It's interesting, the person immediately knew this was the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam. Was that person Ahithophel? We don't know. What we do know is this, Ahithophel knew that David had violated his granddaughter and killed his granddaughter's husband. Maybe this was why. And probably is why he betrayed David. Hithophel, like his counterpart Judas, ended up with the same kind of death. He went out and he hanged himself. So here was a man of wise counsel, a godly man, a good man, who started right, but he didn't end well. And it's so important to start right. It's so imperative to end well. And if good and godly men who, when they speak, speak as the oracles of God can fall, it can happen to you, it can happen to me. What was it with Ahithophel? I think it was a deep-seated bitterness that he never got over. David, my own friend, allowed my granddaughter to be violated, and he violated her. Then he killed her husband. If you have a deep-seated grudge, get help. 
get some wise counsel. There are people that are there to help you right here at OBC. Listen to Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Forgiveness is a verb, it's not a feeling. Peace comes when you have forgiven the one who has crushed you. I always feel like when I get into a subject like this, like forgiving someone who you're most intimate who has betrayed you. By the way, that can be a friend as it was in the Hithville. It can be a spouse. It can be a person who took vows with you and then all of a sudden he cheated. She walked out. It can be a child you raise. It can be parents. But peace comes when you're willing to forgive that person. And when you do remember, forgiveness does not nullify your spiritual discernment. I can forgive you, but I may never trust you again. I can forgive you, and I hope you're cutting clean if you want forgiveness, but time will take its course to determine the level of trust again. Forgiveness doesn't nullify your spiritual discernment. Forgiveness does not nullify the consequences of the one who did what he did to you. Ask David. David suffered the rest of his life. Every day, every month. Filled with suffering. Look at the third part of Bathsheba's, her husband Uriah. Now the fact that Eliam the father chose Uriah, the Hittite he's called. Remember the Hittite empire ended about 200 years before the rise of Israel to her golden age. Some suggest that Uriah, no proof, suggests that perhaps it was through the exploits of David with Goliath and the bears and the lions and all those things that maybe caused him to come a proselyte to Judaism. But you can be sure of this, if you're a godly man, and in those days, if you were to choose your, the, 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 the husband that would marry your daughter, what's the first thing you would look for in that man, right? A man of honor, stature, godliness, and spirituality. And you better believe that Eliam would do the same thing. And so he chooses Uriah, who also, by the way, is one of David's 37 mighty men of valor. You can see that in 2 Samuel 23. So he was a proselyte of the Jewish faith, a devout Jew, who would have been careful, Eliam, to choose a devout man of God for his, for his son-in-law. And the wisdom of that choice proves out as the Uriah shows himself to be a man of noble character in the very brief glimpses we have of his life. By the way, Uriah, his Hebrew name means Yahweh is my light. The Lord is my light. And we can go on with that, Candle. So that's a great name, isn't it, to live up to? It speaks of him. And then fourthly, notice her, her chosen name, which is Bathsheba. We're simply looking at her privileged lineage. The name that Eliam and no doubt his wife 
Bathsheba's mother chose for her was Bathsheba, which means daughter of the oath. So it's either a reference to the promise to Abraham or some thanksgiving promise made to God by her father and her mother. Either way, it shows there was genuine light on the genuine faith that her father had. And what we're seeing is God's providence, which is the servant of grace, is at work in Bathsheba's life from her birth to her death. Let's move to the passage we know most about when we think of Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. It's what I call Bathsheba's personal loss, her personal loss. According to 2 Samuel, maybe I'll just read a few verses here. In the spring of the year, 2 Samuel 11, 1, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. David remained at Jerusalem. Why'd you do that, David? Kings lead their armies. Kings don't send their armies out. They go out and they lead them. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, It's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent, took her, she came to him, he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She returned to her house, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Let's just stop there for a moment. David sees this woman, Bathsheba, she's bathing herself, and he lusted after her. Now most preaching on this chapter seems to suggest Dare say, if I went back 40 years, you might hear my voice saying the same thing in a cassette tape I would like to destroy, as well as many others that I've preached and been recorded. But it it, it pictures Bathsheba as this very seductive, uh, sensuous, and scheming woman who carefully timed her bathing in the nude, question mark, when she knew David, question mark, would be out in the cool of the day so that he would be sure to take notice of her so that he could cause his fall from grace. That's what most people think. That's what Hollywood betrays, display, uh, portrays. Now, I disagree with that, as you can tell by the tone of some of my words. And I'm not 100% that I'm right, so let me just be plain with that. I think I'm right, but I'm not 100% dogmatic. And time doesn't permit me delving into all the details surrounding this story that have brought me to that point. But consider this with me. Number one, David is alone after the sin is confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin, but nothing is ever said about Bathsheba being confronted. Not one word. Now, I realize silence in the scriptures doesn't mean it didn't happen. But the point is, as far as we know, it didn't happen. It seems, number two, that Bathsheba had no need to repent. In Nathan's parable to David, it's found in 2 Samuel 12. After a year of silence, of David keeping silence about his sin. And in those years, remember Psalm 32? He says he's dried up like a potsherd. The moisture is 
taken from him. He was in misery city like every believer is when they don't deal with their sin. And it's very interesting when Nathan comes to him, he does it very tactfully at the right timing with the truth, which is what every confrontation should involve. And he says there's a parable. There's this very rich man, and he had all these sheep, and another man had just a little, poor little lamb, you lamb. And that man took that little you lamb when he had so many himself, and he stole it from him, and he killed that ewe lamb. And he says, David, what should we do to that man? David said, put him to death. And you know the story. Nathan looked at him and says, what? Thou art the man. And then David broke. And so when we look at that parable, you can see that Bathsheba is clearly the innocent little ewe lamb Taken. Well, David is seen as the guilty one. Second Samuel eleven twenty seven says, "But the thing David had done displeased the Lord." It's in the context, by the way, where nobody else really knows what's going on yet. Oh, David, somebody knows. Just somebody knows, like what you're, what's going on in your life and in my life. Somebody always knows because he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Nothing escapes his eye. And he knows all that's happening in our lives. David lusted after Bathsheba and had his servants bring her to him. I don't know what that means exactly. Literally dragged her. The king would like to see you. All I know is David had his soldiers. Remember, he's the king at Israel, at her golden age, the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom on earth. The scriptures never tell us what Bathsheba's reactions were. Was she raped? Don't want to think that, but it's possible. Was it consensual? I mean, even so, are there not degrees of what it means to be consensual? If Monica is a willing partner, is the playing field level when it's the most powerful man in the world in Oval Office and you have a 21-year-old starry intern? It's not level, it's not right. Even if it's consensual. Today we know more about power differentials in these sort of sexual relationships. And we know that if you're a powerful person and you have powerless people around you that even if it's consensual, it's not the same thing. Those of you in authority, those of you who have power, you got two ingredients you take every day to the office. You take a pail of water and you take a towel. Servant leadership is your leadership. Serving, not overpowering. It wasn't a secret very long, as we read in Bathsheba simply sent David a letter. I don't know all it said, but I do know it said this. David, I'm pregnant. What are you going to do, David? The secret has come out.
Well, when he learned she was pregnant, he tried to cover their sin. Good thinking, David, you're a smart man. So he brings Uriah home from the front of the battlefield. And if a man comes from the battlefield and been away from his wife, what are you normally thinking? They're going to enjoy a marital relationship. And then that'll cover the sin. Everyone will think it's your baby, Uriah, and I escape. One problem. Uriah was a man of honor. And he says, how in the world can I go and sleep with my wife when my men are on the battlefield? I can't do that. It says he lay out by the door of David. Okay, David. Option two now, what do you do? Well, he gets Uriah drunk. He invites him into his house the next night for dinner. And when the servants is there and Uriah says, I've had enough, just give him a little more wine. Give him a little more wine until Uriah was drunk. Because, why, David? Because he knows a man will do some things when he's drunk that one he won't do when he's sober. Don't get drunk. You'll do things, young people, you wouldn't have normally done when you were sober. So he gets him drunk. Now that'll take care of it. David, now drunk, would go home and enjoy his wife. Has it hit you yet that Uriah was a more honorable man drunk than the man after God's own heart was sober? That's scary. But he was. Well, when David realized he couldn't cover his sin by making Uriah think he was responsible for Bathsheba's pregnancy, he sent a note to his commanding officers. Imagine getting this note. Do me a favor. I'm ordering you put Uriah at the front, then withdraw so that Uriah will be killed. That's what he did. So in effect, he murdered Uriah. David took Bathsheba to be his own wife. The child conceived by their fornication died shortly after birth. David ultimately was confronted with his sin and he repented, but his life was never the same again. When you think of David's life, 70 years, think of it this way. Age 17, he's a teenager out taking care of sheep in the fold. Samuel comes, looks for the next king of Israel, goes for all uh, the, the, the sons uh, of Jesse and has said, you don't have one, oh, there's one out in, the, out in the shepherd's fields, but it's just my little youngest teenage son, David. He went out to him and remembered Samuel poured the oil on his head and he says you're going to be the next king of Israel 17 year old teenager and David waits so patiently on the Lord so hard to wait especially when you know you've already been anointed king but he waited 13 years and at the age of 30 he assumed the kingship for the next 20 years, from 30 to 50, he, he took Israel to her golden age, the greatest age she's ever known, only to be exceeded by the greater son of David when he takes Israel in the millennial reign. And then at the age of 50, such a vulnerable time for men, he sees Bathsheba. 
And then from 50 to 70, if you have a, a graph, it would look kind of like this. It goes up, then it goes way up to the age of 50, and then from 50 to his death, 70, all the way down. You started right, David, but you didn't end well. Listen to these words of 1 Kings 15.5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the David's life. Ah, dang. Dang. Except. Don't you wish there were no except? Don't you wish he just said he did all the David's life what God told him to do? But no, we have to add it, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You, you don't, you don't want except at the end of your life. You want, he was a faithful man, she was a faithful woman of God, period. Let me just make two uh, little applications to this point. Number one, if Bathsheba were guilty of seducing David, if we take that side of argument, then my principle is simply this. Spiritual privileges do not guarantee spiritual success. Even if she had all this upbringing with father, grandfather, Uriah, whom she mourned over when she heard of his death, by the way, and even her what her name means, living up to her name. Spiritual privileges, young people, do not guarantee spiritual success. You can have the godliest mom and grandma in, in, in the world, but you're going to have to make choices. Some of you young guys and gals in high school and university age, you're at a crucial time. Make the right choices. So even if Bathsheba were conniving, seducing, it tells us spiritual privileges don't guarantee spiritual success. On the other hand, if Bathsheba were innocent, as I believe she was, I believe she was totally innocent. The poor little innocent ewe lamb has no semblance of guilt to it. The lack of any reproof, correction, Leads me to believe she's the innocent lamb. Yet, assuming Bathsheba were innocent, then being in the will of God is the best place to be, but it's not the safest place to be. I get sick and tired of hearing well-meaning people say, the safest place in the world for the Christian is the will of God. That is such a lie out of the pit of hell. Don't you believe it for a minute. And if you question that, then I'll just mention a few words. Jesus. How safe was he? We know he wasn't out of the will of God. Paul, Peter, Savannah Chet Bitterman, Hannah Lee. The doctor in the Congo who's repeatedly raped in the 64 rebellion by the Congolese drug-crazed men. And then she went back to the very place where she had been re 
repeatedly abused and she was in the will of God. It wasn't safe. But she'll tell you it was the best place to be. Yet we know that God's providence, which is the servant of grace, is at work in Bathsheba's life from her birth to her death. As my African-American brother used to say in the front row of the church in D.C., let's bring it on home, brother. Bathsheba's providential legacy. Last point. First of all, her past. Let's consider her actions after she becomes David's wife. 2 Samuel 12, 24, 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and lay with her and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. I just love the end of that verse 24. And the Lord loved him. Does that sound to you like God is still holding something against David? No, quite the opposite. This was a marriage that wasn't supposed to happen. And yet God crowned it with his blessing. Why? How about just one word? Grace. How about just grace? Perhaps to teach us, if you've gone through that awful thing called adultery or divorce or whatever fits, that there is life after adultery or divorce, not just life, but abundant life. And you're no second-class citizen either in the family of God. God chastised David for his sin, but he gave him a wonderful heritage after repentance as a lesson to us all. Bathsheba is the story of how great God's grace can be in a person's life. Nothing more is written really about Bathsheba until David was about to die. Bathsheba played a key role And making sure the scriptures were fulfilled and David's covenant was fulfilled that his son Solomon would sit on the throne after David. Even though another son of David did everything he could, Adonijah, in order to usurp the throne for himself. And all that's recorded in 1 Kings 1, 31 to 35, you can read it. But all this teaches us that God's providence, which is the servant of grace, is at work in Bathsheba's life, from her birth to her death. Lastly, the prophetic, the prophetic nature here of Bathsheba's providential legacy. Bathsheba had three other children with David, and I want to show you something interesting about one of them in particular in 1 Chronicles 3.5. These were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Did you pick up up there the name, that third one, Nathan, as one of her sons? Nathan. Didn't I hear his name earlier today? The man that pointed his finger at David and said, you're the man. You're guilty. It says something about the spiritual nature of David and Bathsheba to name your son after the person who was bold enough and truthful enough to tell you you were wrong. They named him Nathan. And Nathan, the prophet, 
So we know that two sons of Bathsheba were in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, we see Nathan, which is believed to be Mary's genealogy. But in Matthew's gospel, which is Joseph's genealogy, we see it goes through the son Solomon. David paid heavily for his sinful act with Bathsheba. Yet God would not allow this to disrupt his divine providence and plan. King David, a descendant of kingdom-minded Boaz and Ruth, would need a suitable helpmate of compatible deaths to preserve the messianic lineage. And Bathsheba was the one chosen among all of David's wives. She was shamed. She wasn't shameful. God crowned her life with blessing, and that's what grace does to your life and mine. When God saves someone, he doesn't just forgive them, he elevates them. A robe, a ring, a fatted calf. You wear the beautiful robes of salvation, not prison garb. It's about time we see Bathsheba for what she truly was, at least in my opinion, a daughter of Zion. This is grace of the magnanimous God Almighty. He's merciful, but he's not unrighteous. God's providence, which is the servant of grace, is at work in Bathsheba's life from her birth to her death. And you know what? That same providential God is at work in your life too. Everything that happens, nothing, not one thing can happen to your life or my life except God either directs it to happen or at least permits it to happen. Even you being in church today, that's part of God's providence. Don't spurn that. Don't waste it. God brought you here. Don't think about someone else Don't think about someone not here that, quote, needs to hear this message. Focus your life upon God. Lord, what do you have for me? Maybe it's to learn of the grace and love of God and the forgiveness and to be forgiven yourself and born again. Maybe to realize if you have sinned, awful sins as we all have, that God's grace and mercy is greater than all of our sin. That he stands there ready to Put that ring on our finger and that righteous robe over us with the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever has happened in our lives, there's a providential God and undergirding that is grace, grace, God's grace each step of the way. And Praise the Lord for it. Would you bow with me in prayer?